This is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. So uh, I've been thinking again and again about this uh, quote from Rudolf Steiner, which is, machinery is really thought poured into mineral. But I've been thinking, whose thoughts, what thoughts, what minerals, uh, where do they come from, and what machines arise out of all the variations of all that? And the reason I've grown increasingly interested and worried and enthusiastic is because of the role tech is now playing in our lives uh, in relation to this global crisis. And it could be the role that it's going to play in its worst possibility, that surveillance, singularity, hypercapitalism or its best, like the artistic and occult spiritualization of our relationship to machinery. So I have kind of aimed to do a sort of mini-series of episodes on technology uh, of this podcast, and it started with the previous episode with Peter Biebergall about how occult and magic and technology uh, mix, especially historically and philosophically. And now uh, we will have an episode with uh, Duncan Laurie. And this is uh, a discussion I recorded way back in 2011 with him. Duncan is an amazing artist, sculptor, and a cult tech pioneer. He's the author of the profound book, and seriously, you should all get this book. It's called uh, The Secret Art, A Brief History of Radionic Technology for the Creative Individual. I have links to that in the show notes, uh, so you can uh, go buy it, because it really is awesome. I first heard of Duncan's work with radionics via his segment on the late Great Disinformation TV series. And in that clip, he talks plainly about two strange technologies which I'd never heard of at the time and which really blew my mind. First was radionics, which is what we primarily discuss on the episode. Second was his biosensor sonic uh, connections to plants and stones. Since we talk primarily about radionics, let me first describe what that is to you so you're not just out in the weeds. And I've written an essay about it that's also linked in the show notes I wrote, I think, in 2013 for Vice, of all places, when I used to write for them. Um, So you can link to that uh, just to fill in some of the blanks here, uh, because I'm going to go through this kind of quickly. Radionics originated as a healing technology in San Francisco in the early 1900s. And it worked off the assumption that all matter, and when I say matter, uh, included in that was the theory that there were substances behind illness and health and growth, that all matter, all substances evinced a radiation or a vibration. And if you could tune into that radiation, if you could read it somehow, you could heal patients, you could assist farmers to grow better crops, you could help engineers solve creative problems. There were so many possibilities if you could just tap into that was how the theory went. And this tech was uh, formed and created basically by this physician, Albert Abrams. And Abrams uh, invented these radionics devices. They're these wooden boxes. They look almost like rudimentary stereos uh, stuffed with some wires. Um, And essentially, Abrams would use these boxes that had dials on them to diagnose patients. And he would do this somewhat intuitively. 
he would uh, have a representation of the patient. <laughs> so this gets even more and more strange. He would have a representation of the patient. It would either be uh, another person or he would have something else to represent the patient, a symbol, and he would tap on that and turn these dials and find out where they kind of stick. So if you know anything about muscle testing, it's a little bit like that where you sort of find what you intuitively know, but you're using devices to do that. And after the diagnosis, the practitioner, Abrams usually, would prescribe different treatments. And some of the treatments were simply turning the dials on the box to create a kind of counter disease effect. Uh, Abrams also claimed that he could heal from a distance with these devices by putting blood or hair or even the signature of a patient in a witness well, which was a small hole in one of the radionics devices. The technology is sort of like a medical divination, so Albert Abrams would intuitively use it to find the illness and then address the illness with a symbolic cure. The updated concept of radionics, and the one that still persists, is basically something like words and images and symbols uh, can be utilized to produce material results. So that sounds a lot like magic, right? The external components, like these radionics boxes, they make radionics distinct. Um, if you've seen these boxes, and I have pictures of them in the show notes, they're really beautiful, all the way back to the ones that Abrams was using to the ones that are developed today, and some of those do now have uh, like actual working parts <laughs> that you can plug in and all that sort of stuff. Um, a lot of them still don't, though. A lot of them are just these kind of they look sort of like a hipster bar uh, aesthetic or like an old curmudgeon library aesthetic with polished wood and these beautiful dials are really pretty. So even if you think that the tech is stupid, these uh, devices are beautiful. And I don't think the tech is stupid. Um, the updated versions of radionics have been used to create occult effects, to inspire art, to grow crops, to rid houses of rodents, to create wealth. And in the most famous case, um, to solve an engineering problem. So uh, Thomas Gallen Hieronymus used radionics to create what would later become scotch tape because uh, people were having trouble figuring out to how to get uh, the tape to just have one sticky side. Now, of course, all of this has been widely contested and quote-unquote debunked, which is something that Duncan, Laurie, and I talk about uh, a bit on this episode. But why is it important also to look into this beyond its debunking or beyond whether or not we think it actually works? And again, in that article I wrote uh, years ago, I talk about how I drew a radionics machine and how maybe it sort of did something. So this was just a radionics device I drew on a piece of paper. Um, so I have a little bit of experience with this in my life. And uh, yeah, it, you can do it for yourself too if you want. Duncan's work uh, with plants, which is not something we talk a lot about, just a little bit on this episode, is also really inspiring. And when I visited him years ago in Rhode Island, he showed me the biosensors hooked up to plants and stones and how, and they, they were making sounds. So they were also 
hooked up to devices that produce sound. And they emitted sounds in response to different sorts of what we would say is stimuli. And when I was there, it was clear that something was going on in his studio. And I remember him saying, I wish someone could just come and tell me what's happening here. Uh, But something is happening, and something was happening. As an aside, he uh, created an entire uh, recording using the biosensors. Um, It's really crazy. Uh, But one of the recordings he created is a philodendron responding sonically to the Bob Dylan song, Cocaine. Uh, And again, there's links to that. Because this was recorded long ago, um, I know by now Duncan has deepened his research with radionics and especially with the sonic experimentation. So if you go to DuncanLaurie.com, you'll get a good grasp of his work along with his co-artists and co-experimenters. And of course, because this was recorded long ago, you'll hear it in the sound, in my younger voice, in my clumsiness as someone who's uh, (laughs) discussing these deep topics. But I still think it turned out pretty good, and I feel that this discussion is actually way more relevant now, and urgently so, than it was back when I recorded it. Um, Because radionics and other occult tech allow us to imagine new relationships to the tech world which is threatening to consume us. That said, there is plenty of good tech. Um, One of the good uses of tech is Patreon, and here is where I ask you to participate in the creation of this show and my mission to bring these complex and needed and uh, interesting conversations and discussions to the public via patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. When you go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, you can contribute to the show at any level. I know this is a really weird financial time for a lot of you, um, and I just want to say Patreon is making possible so many artistic endeavors. Um, and this time and allowing them to survive, including this one. Uh, so you can give at whatever level fits your financial situation. For a lot of people, that's a dollar a month. For some people, it's 10. For some people, it's more. Um, but basically, you give at whatever level you can, patreon.com forward slash Connor and you get cool stuff back uh, for contributing. Uh, but mainly, I think, you know, aside from the kickbacks, it's just you get to support something that has meaning and value for you. So please give whatever you can right now at patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. If you can't, that's totally okay, of course. I understand that not everybody is available uh, to uh, support the arts right now. But uh, if you could go to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating, If you give the show, if you troll the show and you give it a lower rating, it actually doesn't do anything. It doesn't affect visibility. It doesn't really affect anything um, in an adverse way. But if you give it five stars and you write a pleasant review, the more of those it has, the more visible it becomes on the iTunes platform, which means the more people see it. So if you go onto iTunes and uh, give it a five-star rating, and if you want to write a brief and great review of how much you love the show, that'd be awesome. Uh, And also, please do subscribe on whatever platform you think is best. I'm so happy that the show has blown up so much over the past year. We're doing really great, and I know it's reaching uh, quite a lot of people now. I'm (laughs) really happy about that. Okay, 
So that's enough of me talking now. Uh, everybody, please enjoy and think about and be inspired by and use as a springboard this episode to create your own weird occult tech. Uh, here's my conversation with Duncan Moore. You're a sculptor and you work, uh, and an artist and you work specifically with glass a lot, right? And, um, I'm wondering if you can point to a moment in your life when, uh, you really opened up to the possibility of subtle energies and if that was in, uh, deep connection with the fact that you were doing art. Well, I don't, <clears throat> I think that my interest in this began growing up in a very uh, spending the summers in a very magical house on Jamestown that is was uh, torn down in the 60s and is now where my studio uh, has been built but the house uh, was a large old Victorian uh, maybe Queen Anne would be a better description of the architecture style uh, 58 rooms filled with a lot of them empty and crumbling and the house was in had belonged to my grandparents and was in a serious state of, of decomposition by the time it was torn down but in spite of its mass and its size it had an extraordinary warmth and friendliness to it and it was very reviving i used to go down there from boarding school when I only had like from Saturday noon till Sunday at 6 p.m. And I'd go visit this house and stay there. And the uh, I'd just come back like completely rejuvenated. And it, even at the time, I had no knowledge of radionics or no interest in these things at all. But I couldn't help notice that there was an environment that was created by architects and designers and inhabited by people and decorated by my ancestors who managed to pull off, you know, something that was definitely beyond what I had learned uh, as an individual to accept as sort of a scientific premise that uh, matter is matter and so on and so forth, you know. But here we were in a house that functioned in this very living way with the environment which was beautiful around it it seemed to be a, a conduit to the beauty and the natural forces of the sea around it and the air and the sounds of the buoys all of that seemed to the house seemed to focus that and make it very apparent and very nurturing so i would go back to that and i saw that same sort of thing uh, reinforced at other specific points in my life later on. But that was the, the first time I think I became conscious of this type of dynamic that now we're referring to broadly as radionics or subtle energy. And and do you think that the, the fact that the house was sort of falling apart too, uh, de decomposing and coming apart also had something to do with this feeling, like having a feeling for a completed cycle of nature or something like that it's an interesting thought i i did never put it together that way i i think may it contributed to the informality and the lack of 
uh, pressure that one feels under normal social circumstances in a well-organized uh, environment of that kind. So in a sense, the fact that there was nothing pressing on me or no sense of obligation or responsibility, I think, made the, the natural part of it uh, more easier to, to be felt and, and to be really drawn in personally, at least for me, it allowed me to feel more comfortable with the experience. Mm. I don't know if the answer, but I hadn't really thought of it too much in those terms. Um, well, so then I'm, I'm wondering, so <laughs> it's a great story about this house. So then, <laughs> um, so then these other, um, I mean, a lot of people know you now for your work and, uh, examination of radionics of your work with stones and plants. And I'm wondering if, um, bringing in this intense experience you had, or it, I guess it sounds almost gentle in a way too, <laughs> of this house, um, have these things sort of formed into a, a spiritual perspective or a coherent spiritual worldview for you? Um, or do they just sort of seem like steps along the way to who knows what? Well, that's a big jump. I think that going back to the house, the, what the house gave me was a magical perspective of life. And what I mean by that is that here I grew up in this place and I, with grandparents that I loved, and I felt a great uh, – a lot of family members were there interacting with each other. It was large, and people could have fun together and get along. So it was very positive, you know, given normal family dynamics. But later on, when the house was being torn down, I would come up there from college with some friends and we would camp in it while it was being torn down. It took a long time to tear this place down. And there, it had a, maybe seven stories high and we, the top four stories had been torn down. And we were uh, camping out in my grandmother's bedroom, which had a fireplace. And there was no, no, no service to this house anymore, but the chimney still went up the full height of the house. So we were, heating ourselves and cooking and so in the fireplace <laughs> all of a sudden and my grandmother had a room she called her lock closet which where she kept her valuables so we were scavenging for paper to start a fire none of us of course had a scent you know to our name so all of a sudden they in pulling the papers out of the closet uh she didn't even have a door on it at this time a 20 dollar bill fell out onto the floor, right? <laughs> so we had no money, but the $20 was just enough at those days. This was the late 60s to buy quite a good meal for a number of people. And it was just an example of what I'm talking about. Now, when you take this, this sort of sense of the magical dimension of life and how accessible is it and how real is it and what does it mean in terms of spirituality, then I think you are taking a much greater leap into something that's more uh, the personal quest of the soul to find meaning and find happiness and to transcend the self and to merge into the divine. I mean, that's a really big discussion. And what 
what I'm really talking about in terms of radionics is sort of the first step, you know, where you get beyond the uh, get beyond the dimension of of just materialism and the mechanistic viewpoint of life, and suddenly just walk into another world where a different set of parameters is at work. How do you make that happen for yourself? I mean, an ordinary person, not a not a quantum physicist or something like that. Just you and me, you know, sitting here. What do we do to have that a part of our lives? Yeah, I think that's really a great <clears throat> point. It's also an indicator of the appeal of radionics in people's lives. The ability to put intention into something, um, into material, and actually, I'm I'm wondering if that that is why the material component is so important because a lot of times radionics is used for something very functional. Like you said, like people are trying to heal themselves or, you know, help their crops, or you said something about using it to get rid of cockroaches and rats in your apartment in New York once. And yeah. I'm wondering, you know, maybe uh, because it's a step toward some sort of, uh, or, or initial step towards some sort of spiritual fulfillment or understanding, it still has to have that material component for a lot of people because they can't just completely step out of a material world, nor would we necessarily want to, um, but grounding it in that materiality of that object. Um, and I guess, I guess that makes me wonder then, you know, there are a lot of, uh, spiritual or intentional um, practices and all that, but you were attracted to one that employs devices, that employs, you know, I mean, for, for some reason, these machines captured your imagination. I mean, they might not even be properly called machines, but you know what I'm saying. And um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that, why it was that these objects were so appealing to you. Well, let's look at, let's step back and just define radionics just for the sake of the conversation. The way I introduced it in the book was that, and from what my research had led me to believe, is that most radionic practitioners felt that all matter uh, produces radiations of some kind and that the human body can interpret and sense those radiations that you all you need really to understand those radiations is your body but that your mind can in turn take and influence the nature of those radiations and how they are perceived or used in this case in the real world so to me that's the that's the transition point between where you see this as a cerebral phenomena and where it's grounded in the material world. Now, I realize this isn't exactly a scientific uh, discussion, so, but we're talking about ordinary people using these things, often primitive people, people, pre-scientific people, people who don't intellectualize their or develop mathematical equations to describe the reality that they are that they are 
uh, seeing. So in simple language, this is the, this is the nature of what we're talking about is that we have to interact with the world. We use our senses all the time to interpret what we see, but what's really going on with what we see is going on in the brain. It's going on inside our cells. We are actually have to interpret these, these, uh, sense, sense, sensory, uh, inputs and assign values to them and then respond to them according to our needs. So we're dealing with mind body, you know, every second of the day and how we actually are able to control that process is also could be said to be self-control. So to the extent that we can control ourselves, then we begin to have a dimension of spirituality in our life. So spirituality begins with taking parts of ourselves that we feel uncomfortable with or we feel out of touch with or we feel need more attention, and we begin to focus on them and transform them into uh, a useful modality that helps us uh, grow is that yeah and i i mean i really like it in terms of you know a big focus on in my life and for this show is rudolf steiner and anthroposophy and his uh his idea of freedom was being able to act intentionally and to think and feel clearly and there were so many forces um working uh and in motion that were not set in motion by us to so to be able to think clearly and to act with intention is an act of freedom away from just sort of automatic forces and that sort of sounds like what you're talking about i mean uncovering the places in our lives that are sort of unconsciously run or you know gurdjieff would call it the robot um that are just sort of set into motion not by us not by choice and applying intention and choice to those areas. And that's, I mean, it's almost sort of escaping karma, if you want to use that word, everything that's come before us that set our lives into motion and being able to act on it or think on it, you know? Well, who wants to be controlled by things that are outside themselves? What I'm, what I'm saying is that You've jumped immediately into the spiritual dimension of what we're talking about. And that's a complicated discussion. So, and everybody has a different way of approaching this. But what I'm seeing is that when you begin to develop a sense that you can control yourself, I think simultaneously you begin to realize that you can also control a lot of what happens in the world around you, especially how you interpret it and how you learn from it and what you're supposed to learn from it. The minute you lose that and you're just being pulled vicariously into experiences that are beyond your control, then a lot of fear arises. A lot of insecurity comes from that. So what we're talking about is maybe baby steps towards feeling that, yes, there is a, a way that one can 
perceive a higher dimension of life and attune themselves to it and then be guided by those forces to have a much more a much greater sense of protection in life say from the unexpected and the unforeseen including disease including emotional trauma including all the things that are the hardest to bear in life. So we want to have something that helps us cope with these. And I think to that extent, radionics has a, is a valuable tool, although it's not a spiritual tool. It's not the same as spirituality in my mind. It's just a metaphor that points in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so then saying it's not the same as a, spiritual tool or spirituality i mean in in your book the secret art you make a sort of a distinction and then sort of a similarity between radionics and magical uh or other occult practices and um the line seems really blurry throughout and i'm wondering if there's if you have in your mind a way to sort of pull those apart or if you even think that's necessary well, yeah, I think that my understand that I I practice I actually for a long time have been involved in specific spiritual practice called Sirt Shabad Yoga, which is a way of attuning oneself to the sound current within, which is a phenomena that is a bridge phenomena between human consciousness and divine consciousness. So think of the sound as being like the mechanism or the the energy that allows one to uh, experience higher and higher plateaus of awareness. So once you're involved with a discipline like that, some everything else tends to look a little a little dicier you see a little more suspect you see so (laughs) my fascination with radionics grew out of my own personal karma i had a desire to address these topics and to make them clear to myself and therefore make them clear to other people it was a desire that i had something that i wanted to share was an innate feeling that I I wanted to bring this type of awareness to artists, to creative people, because I felt that the the whole uh, perception of art had been seriously degraded by materialism. Mm -hmm. Most of the artists that I knew that I thought were the best artists that I'd ever come in contact were the least capable of self-promotion or self-aggrandizement or actually turning their work into money, which is where the real acknowledgement for art seems to be. If you actually can create a work of art that sells consistently in the world, then you're essentially uh, you're essentially printing your own currency, which puts the artists on a par with a nation state. Okay? So this is the way we have been led to believe fulfillment exists in art as a individual that we can attain this and 
it's a very privileged position. I'm not knocking it, nor am I knocking the artists that have attained it. I think it's significant and it's all to their credit. But for the artists that don't have that opportunity, what's, you know, what's the meaning of their lives? They're left like in the shadows, you know? So if in looking at, at, uh, at ancient cultures, it seemed that the people who had the abilities, who weren't the self-promoters of the societies, they took these talents that they had, these artistic talents, and they developed healing modalities with them. They became figures that were within their societies and their tribes that were able to channel ideas about spirituality, uh, visions, and they also were able to heal, and that there was a connection between those two things that on the higher end of the register were spiritual uh, gifts, and on the lower end of the register were pragmatic abilities. You see? So what I decided to do was try to write a book that introduced this discussion back into art. And in order to do it, I was very surprised when I found about radionics, because radionics was clearly not scientific in the accepted sense of the word, and yet it was mechanical, it was electronic, it was diagrammatic, it was many things that we associate in our culture with science and technology. But it also was not any of those things. So it seemed like an ideal window <clears throat> through which to dis open the discussion to what you, the qu type of question that you're asking. Hmm. Yeah, and I think it's um, one of the most interesting uh, aspects of your book is this conflict um, between people who appreciate radionics in history in the way that you're talking about. And then there, there's this constant um, work of somehow scientifically validating it. And that's so fascinating to me. And I, I, you know, in fact, if you do like a, just a cursory look for radionics on the internet and you go to Wikipedia and you find, you know, one of the first innovators, Albert Abrams, who lives here in San Francisco you know, you find just all this information about him being sort of debunked or discredited. I mean, that's the public sort of record of him. Like, oh, Scientific America investigated some radionics practitioners. And um, and so in that route, there's been this uh, debunking work. And yet the way you're talking about it completely stands outside of that. Well, maybe not completely, but at least partially or mostly stands outside of that concept of seeking that validation from science. And that was really just fascinating to me about the book. Like what, what if we found worth in techniques that weren't, that didn't have to be um, sort of given the pat on the butt by science all the time. Um, what if there were something even more powerful and worthwhile that was also a technique, that was also an action that we could take in our lives. Um, and, you know, I wonder, it made me wonder what your sort of, uh, 
your vision of this coming to fruition would be? I mean, if more people bought into that, what would it look like? Um, how would people be interacting with each other and their and and meaning? You know. Well, I think that I think that that is an open ended question, which uh, will be defined <clears throat> to the extent that these ideas become uh, more palatable to a wider audience. So I think that what happened in early, you have to realize at the time Abrams discovered what he considered to be radionics, that the it was at the dawn of the era of electronics and electronic technology, modern electronic technology. So people weren't really sure what electricity and magnetism could or couldn't do. And for a very long time, he was a renowned and highly trained uh, scientist, European uh, and independently wealthy scientist that could take the, do experiments and treat people and had a lot to his credit uh, <clears throat> medically. He was at Stanford, you know, head of the physiology department, I believe. So what he did was just try to open the discussion. Because at that time, allopathic medicine wasn't what it is today, that most of the probably homeopathy and other more intuitive treatments were on an equal footing to uh, what we would consider to be chemical medicine today. So I think he was in very safe ground for a long time, but he also made mistakes uh, in the way he promoted it. And it wasn't completely – he, he had good people behind him, scientific peoples and writers like Upton Sinclair, a lot of really significant people examining this curative form. <clears throat> but scientists want the approval of science. I mean, they don't want to be considered charlatans or they don't want to do something outside of the accepted uh, procedure. They want their discoveries to be incorporated into those, uh, into those uh, discussions. And I think what you see in radionics is that people in the initial stages from Abrams through the next generation or so of engineers and designers and practitioners all were trying their level best to get their ideas uh, accepted. And for a long time, they were moderately successful at that. But there was a point where radionics stopped being scientific and became a cult. And there, it doesn't mean that the scientific side of radionics was eliminated. It just meant that it was now impossible to discuss it without also considering the occult dimension of radionics, which then was the, like a death blow for acceptability uh, in the scientific world. At the turn of the 19th century, there were many prominent scientists who were also occultists. You know, there were not, it wasn't inconceivable as a scientist to discuss life after death or uh, uh manifestations of uh, uh, forms of the dead through uh, seances. All this stuff was being looked at, and they were trying to get a sense of it. 
scientifically. And then eventually it all just was considered rubbish and everybody moved on to more pragmatic uh, uh, and uh, materially uh, uh, productive uh, uh, forms of uh, inquiry. Yeah. Yeah, so then, I mean, it, it makes me wonder if you think this concept of proof like even when when you when you spoke in another interview about the cockroaches and rats in your apartment, you said, "Well, I couldn't prove that that's what that the radionics work that I was doing got rid of them, but it seemed to have something. You know, it seemed a little too coincidental, right? So I, I'm wondering if you think, you know, this concept of proof and uh, needing proof for uh, actions effects. Um, manifestations where does that start to damage things where does that start to cause problems because you know even with placebo effect for example you can explain the placebo away you know um you can you can explain a lot of things away and then they stop working and there's that strange medical fact that uh cures and remedies work the best when they're first discovered and then seem to lose steam over a while. And I'm, I'm wondering if you, where we can draw that line between saying, well, proof is really helpful empirically in some instances, and then it starts to harm the process. Um, then seeking it starts to somehow tamper with it. Well, <clears throat> proof to whom you see in these in the radionic discussion, I mean, one of the things that I was the most surprised to to learn more and more about is that almost every radionic inventor had his own system. Some of them were electronic, and some of them were non-electronic, but still used electronic components like dials. And some of them were purely diagrammatic, and some of them were absolutely like art objects. They had no conceivable functionality at all they but they still were described by many people as working devices people that benefited from it. so you see who to whom is the proof here if you are setting out to enter this world where you are trying to take possession of your impulses and your mind and your spiritual life let's say and who do you have to prove that to you only have to really prove it to yourself you see when it the problems begin when you have to prove it to other people and of course in order not to be considered completely nuts you want to have things happen that other people can see and they can experience too so if you t call your neighbor in and you you heal them something then you not only have proved something to yourself, but you've proved something to one other person. So then that the confidence grows and the sense of what the reality of this alternate form of uh, treatment, which I'm perfectly happy to call placebo at this point, because placebos are getting very good attention these days. They're scientists are <laughs> like in the Wall Street Journal article, uh, on the 3rd of January, you know, had a wonderful number of studies that it presented about how good 
placebo cures were in relationship to uh, the actual medicines. You can say scientifically now that, that there are other ways of healing, you see, without actually having to explain how it works. <laughs> right. It's odd, but that's what's going on, right? Isn't that the radionics uh, inventor's dream? <laughs> have, the, have that uh, notion entered into the vernacular? Yeah, and I wonder too, you know, you have this equation in your book that information is greater than energy, um, where information eventually transmutes into some sort of energy. And that to me is such a uh, profound concept, but in the context of this question and your response, it makes me wonder if that scientific, explanatory, and mostly materialistic information has a counterpulse that somehow interferes with the information that comes with art, um, that comes with an artistic response to something, if it has some sort of canceling frequency or something like that. Could you elaborate on that a little more? <laughs> um, well, it just came to me, so I'm not sure if I can, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm wondering, you know, um, just the, the, I, the idea of materialism, um, as you say, information trans, um, transmutes itself, transforms into certain kinds of energy or transforms into energetic pulses or reactions. So maybe the energetic frequency or something, if we want to try to imagine it, give ourselves a picture of it, the energetic frequency of the information of science and materialistic explanation somehow um, is at odds with the tone or the frequency caused by um, artistic, certain kinds of artistic exploration. So it's like having two chords that just are very discordant together. They don't sound right together. Or maybe even somehow cancel the vibratory frequency out. I mean, I'm using terms that I wouldn't necessarily use if I sat down and thought about it for a long time, but just as it's occurring to me now, I wonder if the qualities of information can cancel each other out or supplement each other. Um, and that's playing out here somehow in this idea of proof versus uh, effect in radionics. All right. Well, I, I can give you an example from my experience about how I came, I come to perceive some of this and that, <clears throat> One day, uh, we were doing the sound experiments with the plants in my studio, and it happened to be uh, a group of people came over because that night, coming up the bay right in front of our studio, was the first voyage of the Queen Mary, the new uh, cruise ship, and it was a big deal. There were people jamming the coastline to see this for some reason, and so a lot of people were there, and I was incidentally showing them the plants, which were hooked up to produce sounds and react to touch and things like that, where you could see it. And, of course, they weren't doing anything, you know, because there was so much confusion around in the environment, and there wasn't – sometimes when these experiments work the best, it's when you're alone, when they're, you're really embedded in, in nature, and you feel – you allow yourself – the breath or the bandwidth to feel nature on a very deep and uh, personal level. And of course, all the confusion prevented that until 
at one point, this young adolescent son of some friends of mine who happened to be visiting that weekend bounded up the stairs and into the room, and the plants just went nuts. Nobody could get, including myself, we couldn't get any plants to do anything, any reaction. But the minute this young guy walked in with all his enthusiasm, and he was a very open and joyful young man, very happy to be down at the sea at that day and spending time with his parents. And all of a sudden, this just went, you know, they responded, you know, with such overwhelming uh, support to his presence. So I think, of course, there is. You know, you, you're not talking about mechanistic phenomena here. It's not like a pizza where you put the ingredients on the bread and you stick it in the oven and 15 minutes later, out comes the pizza, you know, consistently, day in and day out. These things operate according to a very different set of criteria. And a lot of it is set and setting, and it is what you bring to your uh, to to the whole discussion in terms of your innate abilities. People have abilities to do this. Some do, some don't. You know, even when Hieronymus made his device famous through exposing it to a wide range of scientists uh, in the 1950s, and they. Everybody was astounded that the the diagram, the radionics device, could be used with a dial the same way the electronic device could be used, to do the same experiments, to produce the same effects. Everybody said, oh, this is madness. But the reality was the people that were doing it were these really top scientists at the time that had been all... Uh, brought into the discussion vis-a-vis the uh, editor of Analog Science Fiction Magazine who was trying to really bait them with some non-scientific, magical hypotheses. And they took the bait and they played with it. So they took these devices home, and uh, many of the scientists couldn't make them work. But their wives, their children, people, neighbors, people like that were getting the effects. You see, because their own their own mental uh, inability to accept the nature of this type of activity was acting as an impediment to its really happening. And this is very much like art. You know, the minute you have a writer's block, you can't write. You might be the best writer in the world. But if you have writer's block, you're not going to produce a word that's worth a dime. So... Until you get over the impediment and this flow of this natural energy that is animating your mind and making your creativity flow, until that's there and working, you might as well be a a rock or a stump or something. You see what I mean? (laughs) So so that brings up a question then because we have – of course, this sort of um, skeptic community that um, seeks out to debunk things and to, and, and sometimes rightly so, of course, but a lot of times just uh, really closed-minded to the phenomenon they're supposedly open-mindedly investigating. I mean, so we have this problem that, you know, for people to encounter something like this, they have to be already excited to encounter it um, or open to encountering it. So what could somebody do 
that was really like skeptical or, you know, if not cynical, is there like a, an exercise that they can do or a, some sort of mental trick or practice that they can enter into that allows them to be more open so these effects are more likely to occur? Well, I think what you're saying is that the threshold to entering this experience is very high. And we have to thank the skeptics for making it that way. Because if they didn't, then we'd have all manner of people with all sorts of low motives using these things in potentially diabolical ways on each other, wouldn't we? <laughs> so actually, they're doing us a big favor by setting the high bar. And I think that in order to get over that type of bar, a person has to have already developed some innate sensitivity. And that sensitivity uh, can be described in different ways, but let's just for the sake of simplicity say that this is having a good moral foundation and having a great uh, need to use this for the benefit of others and not for selfish reasons. So I'm not saying that people can't use this negatively. I imagine they can, but I don't like to dwell on that. I, I like to think that I like to think that the innate design of this type of modality is the way it is because it becomes more a byproduct of other more important issues like the kind of things you mentioned at the beginning, scientific stuff. So it's, a, it's only there. I mean, radionics is a healing tool. And a lot of people today don't have money for insurance. They don't have the capacity to go to specialists and to get high-priced treatments and high-priced drugs. So what are these people going to do anyway? Are they just going to be hung out to dry, or are they going to be uh, given some tools that allow them to heal themselves, you see? I like to look at it from that point of view, that the person's needs dictate the degree to which they're willing to uh, stop editing themselves and try something that's a little out of the box, you know? So if you're sick and you want to get cured, there's many, many different alternative forms of medicine, some of which fall into radionics and some of which are probably different. But you can try these things. You see, you might need to try these things for financial reasons. And what we need to do is just say, give this some encouragement, you know, not just bow to the skeptics who have their role to play, but say, well, you know, while you're being skeptical, think of all these other people who really might benefit from this. So we get an article like the placebo article in the journal, and suddenly somebody who's saying, God, now I've got a 35 or 40% chance of taking a sugar pill and getting better? Come on, I'm going to take the sugar pill. You know, why should I spend the $500 medicine? Right, because I've got a 35% chance that this a sugar pill is going to work. You know, so this is, this is very positive news, right? Yeah, so then, you know, 
and just recognizing you have your own limits of experience with radionics and and all that i wonder if you do you know because so if i if i look at your work on your site i mean there's lots of wires there's lots of machinery right and then some of the stuff you cover has no wires or right now you're just talking about a sugar pill but i'm wondering um since there's that openness to radionics and experimentation with it and all that, um, it doesn't have to be super complex. It's very accessible. If you have any sort of hints or tips for people that are um, interested in investigating this, if you have any advice to people that uh, just hear this and, you know, want to pursue it. Well, you know, there it's very individualistic. This is what I want to say more than anything else. That everybody approaches this from their own vantage point, starting with their needs. You know, so if you're once able to apply something and it solves a problem for you, then you will go back and you will try more of it. You see, so one person may like a crystal, another person may like a sugar pill. Another person may use a feather, you know. Somebody actually made a complicated design in sand out of colored sand, you know, like the Navajo do. Uh, other people might uh, develop any number of different techniques to allow themselves to participate in this healing uh, experience or this spiritual experience or this uh, opening experience let's not even use the word spiritual let's just say we're going to try to get a little more bandwidth for ourselves when it comes to life right so something like this we have to pick it you know and that's an individual criteria the point is is that with the internet and with all this type of information like you're providing for the first time, people can really find these things, and they can assess them simply. They don't have to spend their whole lives in some cave somewhere translating a manuscript in a foreign language in order to learn you know, the first thing about what we're talking about here. You can simply go on the computer and get the knowledge people spent their whole lives looking for in five minutes somewhere. The question is, how do you apply it? How do you want to apply it? And and do you think then, I really appreciate that, the, the individuality of it, and that's something also as far as Steiner and every, that was key. I mean, it was, it's all about the individual um, and, and how, how unique everybody's perspective is going to be. Um, and I'm wondering also, is there any group work going on in radionics where it's a lot of people coming together um, to use and create devices or? Well, the, in the United States, there's the United States Psychotronic Association, which has its uh, annual meeting uh, in July, usually the end of the first week of July. Sometimes it's in Kentucky. This year it's somewhere else. Maybe it's Chicago. But you can go to the USPA and find a forum uh, through which it's really the only one I know of that's pretty much now dedicated to radionics. A lot of inventors come there, a lot of alternative thinkers. It's both. It's always been both about scientists and about 
non-scientist healers and other types of people getting together to share their ideas. And now it's a little bit, looks like there's a younger generation of people uh, taking the helm there and trying to open it up uh, and get more uh, discussion in from other areas. So, but in other parts of the world, like in Europe, I think there's even m more uh, information available, much broader sense of application and what, I mean, in the book, I, I, I featured a few people, you know, that were using it psychotherapeutically and environmental uh, reclaiming, you know, very damaged areas of forests and ponds and using it for uh, animal, you know, in veterinary medicine and in many ways that aren't really, uh, where you really have nothing to lose, you know, you can try this. If it works, then you're not going to be arrested for healing somebody or practicing medicine without a license or something like that. You actually can apply it to a, a much broader spectrum of phenomena in order to to see if you can come up with something, you know, a good result. And there are, it's also, uh, radionics says, migrated into computers so you have actual radionic computers like the se5 se5 you have radionic software that you can load onto your own computer you have combination of computerized radionics devices and uh sort of uh, witnesses that are in the field, like pieces of technology, not necessarily electromagnetic technology, but things that are placed in the environment to act as a, sort of a semiotic uh, battery for broadcasting the radionic uh, transmission. There's a whole lot of things going on. It's really pretty exciting, but it's not very well known. And that's, uh, that's why I'm saying that for, if you're an environmentalist or if you're somebody with, who's frustrated with a slow pace of, uh, of change that you see in some other, in the normal modalities, it might be worth a look. Yeah. A lot of this has been used in farming and in agriculture to enhance crops. This goes back to the 50s, you know, before. I mean, why should we be dependent solely on uh, fertilizers and pesticides if we can use something like radionics that is much less expensive and much less environmentally damaging? Now people are using it all over the world. You know, you can go on the Internet and find out about it and ask them. Yeah. Well, I think that that's pretty... <laughs> I mean, as I said before, the accessibility of it, I mean, just that feeling of it is so... I mean, it's just so empowering for anybody. I mean, to to understand that their um, imagination and their creativity, which everybody ex has, is uh, isn't just meaningless. It's not just fancy, but it's something that is uh, powerful in their lives without having any sort of um, spiritual information or background just knowing that your creativity and your imagination can be directed um at something even if you're not going to be a famous artist or a famous singer or something like that i think it's a really beautiful message and you could believe in radionics or not or experience it or not and it's still the right track you know <laughs> so i appreciate well, that well think about Think about creativity itself. I mean, it's a self-referential process that's also empirical. You have to 
sit down, if you're a sculptor, you sit down in front of a piece of stone or a piece of clay or something of that sort, and you have to summon some form of process and procedure in order to put a form into those uh, materials, right? It's had you, and by doing one, you find you want to do another because the questions that the first form, the first form will generate questions that can only be answered by the next form and so on, successive forms. Mm-hmm. So it's an, it's self-referential. You have to go into yourself to ask what it is you're looking for and why. And then you have to apply it to a material. And this is universally accepted as art. You know, what's the big deal? You know, a lot of people do it, and they go incredible distances with this in terms of their capacity to reach others and to express things that are profound about life. So now all we're really saying is is that that same process could be used in maybe a, a less uh, uh, – in a less – Oh, uh, in a less aesthetic way, in a more pragmatic way, to do other things. It's still going to be self-referential. You can't take that away from it. But it empowers the creative process to think that the same tools can be used in a variety of other applications by people who may not be genius violinists or wonderful uh, uh, composers and writers and performers, right? So those people may have a blend of abilities. They might go part of the way with a creative and then say, well, you know, I can also try these other things and maybe I have gifts there that will be more satisfying for me and for others. Maybe instead of just bringing all this to themselves and bringing their own uh, abilities to a zenith, they actually want to share their skills and for the benefit of others. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's its beautiful, you know, and um, without going into these concepts too much, in anthroposophy there are these opposing forces, luciferic and aramonic forces, and the aramonic is the super scientific and super material, and the luciferic is like the new agey, I'm going to leave the earth, and, you know, it's all written in cursive, beautiful what happens here doesn't matter for us. And you're supposed to balance those forces through tension between them. And so in a sense, you know, I think when we were talking earlier about someone trying to validate or prove that radionics is a science, you're dragging the aesthetic aspect down into um, this material or pragmatic aspect which is good that work needs to be done but without at the same time elevating the pragmatic into an aesthetic aspect uh you lose you lose the value you lose the worth i mean it's just so one-sided so i really love this idea of elevating um of of rising our uh pragmatism up into this aesthetic sphere not just uh pulling it down and figuring out how it works constantly, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I spent a great deal of my life working as a glass designer and I did, my customers were architecture firms and, uh, ultimately, uh, 
private residences, private individuals and corporations. And it was nice work. I enjoyed having it. But my intent was to make a living and to provide for my family. It was, you know, it was frustrating in one sense because only a small portion of the potential that I saw, even for the use of the materials, would find its way into an application or into a building or a home. And sometimes a new idea would take 10 years before it became an accepted product that people would call me and ask me to produce for them. So there's long lag time, right? But at the same time that I was doing this, I was aware that if I had the same skill and was able to do in a business-like way this sort of practice uh, that had more direct benefit for other people, I would have you know, probably been a lot more pleased with myself. So I was happy enough to make a living, don't get me wrong. And I <laughs> love the people that I worked for. They were wonderful people to work for. But, and I had my own private artistic life anyway that went on beyond that. But what I'm saying is, is that even in an area like art, there's an awful lot of different, forms uh, in design and in all these interesting areas where people thrive in their lives and have good lives there there's a lot of different things you could do and you you don't have to give up everything that you're good at in order to plunge into these things that are completely nebulous and unknown you can just take a little time out from the things that you're good at and see where the application may lie for some of these ideas you see, and if they have a, we experimented with sound in space in buildings and sound applications and technologies that made people feel good. Things, all, all kinds of different things that we made prototypes of that were related to other more public potential applications. So, um, <clears throat> so that that's been your work for a lot of your life. And I'm wondering also now, you know, since um, also exploring with radionics, your work with that, you said that you've, you know, on your site, it says you've moved on um, in a sense, you're doing something that you call, you're exploring something you call nature intelligence. Can you just talk about that for a little bit and then, uh, and then we'll say goodbye, but I'd like to hear about this, uh, these new thoughts that are going on in you right now. Well, I worked with an electrical engineer named Gordon Salisbury, who was an instrument designer. And he is a prominent individual in all of this work that we did with the plants and the stones and the sounds and all of that sort of thing that's on the site. And then later, Todd Phil came in, who was our web designer, who actually made all this look good, you know? Otherwise, nobody... And he also designed the book, so... Without these people, you know, there wouldn't be this discussion right now. And what I'm saying about it is that we went on a journey with this. It started out with looking at radionics devices as tools. And then we started trying to find out why they work and if they if they work because of some form of energy or 
some form of information or mix of the two, what was it that was the active ingredient? And therefore, if, if we could find that, then we could have better understanding of what this whole thing was about. And that's why we started experimenting and looking at subtle energy experiments like Cleve Baxter's famous experiments with lie detectors attached to plants. And there are many others that were similar. We reproduced these experiments and gradually we got a sense of what some of the underlying forces were that uh, operated this technology. But my personal conclusion about it was that as we move forward, I saw more and more the hand of nature in this or the hand of God or the hand of higher forces operating through the metaphors of the technology or the metaphors of the experiments, making these things comprehensible to me and Gordon. And, and we started interviewing healers and doing experiments and watching healers bring an abundance of this energy to bear on the plants and the rocks. So they were able to augment it. So we began to feel, yeah, this is more like something that is coming from the outside through into the physical world or from the inside of the individual out into the manifested part of consciousness, right? And that's where the dimension shifted, in my opinion, from a discussion of tools and technology to a discussion of consciousness, self-awareness, awareness of what lies beyond the ego and the uh, uh, the body and into another dimension. And that's, I just chose nature intelligence as a term for this because I read it in other contexts. And I mean, uh, and I just felt that it was kind of a neutral term that allowed people to see, to bring their own experience to bear on this regardless of their faith or their spiritual orientation just the general term for the fact that the magic has a form and the form is something that comes through us or through nature into whatever it is that we're experiencing if we allow it to i don't know if that's adequate but that's <laughs> that's about the best i can do today <laughs> Well, um, I'm really excited to see what, what else you come up with. I mean, <laughs> you, the things that you've done and you've written and you've uh, worked on in your life have pretty much blown my mind, so I'm really happy for it. And um, I hope as that work develops, you'd also maybe be interested in coming back and having a, a discussion on that as well. Anytime, and thank you for your... Uh your capacity to look at this in such a broad way, you know, and not get stuck in the, in the technical details because it is harder to talk about the technical details than it is to talk about the big picture. But <laughs> I appreciate having the discussion with you very much and would be happy to return to it anytime you feel like. Okay, great. Thanks, Duncan. Nice seeing you. Appreciate it.